Welcome to the Andrew Young School Podcast, where each month we interview a member of the Andrew Young School community who embodies the school's charge to think ahead and innovate in the fields of criminal justice, economics, public management and policy, social work, and urban studies. In this episode, we're sharing an episode of a new series called Policy Talks. On Policy Talks, Assistant Professor of Public Management and Policy Karima Shaw speaks to public policy leaders from Metro Atlanta about some of the biggest issues in the field today. She also asks questions submitted by students in her Policy Issues courses. Our Policy Talks series is posted on our YouTube channel, which you can subscribe to at the link in the show notes. On this episode, Garima spoke to Victoria Berry and Sydrina Jalal about food and maternity care deserts in Atlanta and beyond. Victoria Berry is the founder and CEO of True Diary, an Atlanta-based maternal health analytics platform that helps OBGYNs better manage prenatal care for underserved communities. Sydrina Jalal is the Senior Director of Partnerships and Programs at the Center for Civic Innovation, whose mission is to push Atlanta to be a smart, equitable, and engaged city by investing in community-driven ideas, supporting social enterprises, and engaging people in dialogue and action. We hope that you'll enjoy this excerpt from our Policy Talks series. So welcome to both of you. I'm so excited to have today with me Sadrina Jalal, who's the Senior Director of Community Innovation at the Center for Civic Innovation in Atlanta. In one of her quotes on her website, she says, food is freedom, liberating communities from inequitable policies and practices. So I'm just so excited to speak with her today about food justice and health of our local communities and all the wonderful work she's done uh, in the area. I also have Veronica Berry, who is the founder and CEO of an innovative startup called True Diary. And I quote from True Diary's website, True Diary is a prenatal risk assessment and monitoring platform designed to detect early high-risk warning indicators in first trimester, allowing for timely interventions, reducing negative birth outcomes. So very innovative, very exciting startup. Uh, She's also the 2021 Center for Civic Innovation Fellow, and that's how the three of us have sort of come together, Um, and a recipient of Google for Startups Black Founders Fund. So thank you to both of you for speaking with me today, and so excited to have you here with me. (laughs) I'm just going to jump into the first question. Uh, Maybe, Veronica, you can start. Um, You know, what experiences or observations did you encounter in your professional and personal life that really motivated and encouraged you to establish True Diary? Well, I want to say thank you for allowing me to speak today. I'm really excited um, to give some insight into uh, what True Diary is and what I do uh, to help the students. So I'm kind of excited about that. Um, my wife for what I do is when I became pregnant, I had severe pregnancy complications and there were a lot of resources that I just could not uh, tap into. I, I didn't even know where to start. And I had these complications. I had gestational um, diabetes and that really put me on extended bed rest. And so I knew something was wrong with my body. I just didn't know what. And so when I gave birth, I did not hold my son for the first day. He went straight to NICU. 
And the doctors told me that um, he would have some learning disabilities, probably some behavioral disabilities. And when he got older of school age, that's exactly what occurred. And I remember the administrators telling me that Jalen wouldn't be able to read or write. He was going to have trouble doing that. And you know, by the time he was in his early teens, he'd probably see um, the inside of a jail cell if his behavior didn't change. And all I remember uh, seeing when I went to teacher parent conferences is my son's um, desk in the hallway. That's how they dealt with Jalen. Um, that's how they taught him. And his um, desk was in the back of the classroom. And I knew at that point that Um, I didn't want another mom to go through the things that I went through. And that's kind of how True Diary um, was birthed. So we have we're building a smart assistant that assists um, OBGYNs with much needed insight between uh, doctor's visits that can help them better manage those patients for better uh, maternal outcomes. And so what we're focused on now is rural Georgia and how that came about when I went to a conference in DC, maternal health conference. Um, I found out a startling statistic. The director of the March of Dimes said that 20 million women live in maternal health deserts, which I didn't know. And so I began to study what that meant. And so that's how I met my co-founder. She's an OBGYN. She's one of my co-founders in rural Georgia. And I told her my experience and she said, you know, you really need to do your research on Georgia. And when I did that research, I found out that um, 79 out of 159 counties in the state of Georgia are without obstetrics care. And so that what that's what really led me to the work um, in rural Georgia with African-American women. So that's kind of where I'm centering on today. Thank, thank you so much, Veronica. That's just so inspiring the way you connected it to, to your life story. Um, you know, you're, you sound like someone who's sort of looking for a solution. So that's fantastic to hear. Very inspiring. Um, so let's move to you, Sadrina. You know, as a senior director of community innovation, thinking about what's the biggest challenge that you face when you sort of were preparing to take this position and maybe also speaking a little bit about opportunities you see in this space and, you know, sort of supporting work like Veronica is doing. Absolutely. I think, um, you know, I transitioned out of my very focused uh, work in uh, local food systems and food justice specifically into this role. And although I was extremely excited to do so because I knew that, um, you know, I would have the opportunity to engage so many people on so many topics and really work on making, you know, Atlanta, the city that I know that it can be. Um, It was overwhelming, you know, just the, the sheer number of um, incredible leaders that are doing, you know, just great work in our communities without support um, or much support, financial support is what I mean, funding. Um, And then also um, not being properly recognized. So just the, just this feeling of like, you know, we're going to 
throw everything at this, but still, you know, there's just going to be so much to do. And, uh, but, you know, there's in that same vein, there's just so much um, inspiration everywhere I look around. I mean, I relate to so many of the, of the fellows and uh, Veronica in particular, um, when she did her pitch as a finalist, I mean, I just, I was stunned because I don't share my story much as a, as a woman who gave birth to three children at at high-risk situations. I had HELP syndrome, which is an elevated form of preeclampsia. And um, it wasn't until I, um, you know, started hearing more about Serena Williams' experience that I realized that I wasn't as unique as I thought that I was. And so creating community around this work and really sharing our stories, but also put putting the pieces together, as Veronica mentioned, you know, reaching into our networks, learning more about what the problems really are and not just in our city, but in our state and our country and how that's impacting people's, you know, real experiences. Um, and then, you know, as Veronica ex- expressed, not just initially, you know, in the childbirth experience, but it could carry throughout your experience raising your children. And so I think that this work um, that she's doing is profound, but the work that so many of our fellows, um, you know, are doing is just, just really incredible. I wake, I wake up every day, just like, you know, thrilled and, and really feeling blessed to do the work that I do. How exciting is that? Maybe Sedrina, this is also a good time to share a little bit about the fellows program. I don't know if any of our students in the future might want to be a part of that, but what does it entail? Yeah, I want to just say that everybody, you know, is a part of the solution, right? So, and has a role to play in community innovation. So I just want to say that just out the gate. Um, but the fellowship program specifically um, is one of the programs that that I direct. Um, and um, it has, I, I want to back up and also say that I was a fellow. And uh, so the opportunity came to me um, through one of the funders that I was working with. And, you know, at the time, I didn't really understand that that the idea of being again a part of a community a cohort and then a greater group of change makers in our city um, would provide just kind of the connection that was missing and I think that's the best way to describe our fellowship program is that it does kind of open doors um, create access where there is an access particularly around you know making sure that you know I's are dotted T's are crossed I mean the truth of the matter is is that the vast majority of our fellows are black female leaders. And, um, and, you know, there are some realities in the um, inequality and philanthropy, as well as just in um, the um, social and civic impact space, when it comes to access to resources. So we really try to find and align with folks that are, you know, already doing good work, you know, and um, do what we can to leverage the connections that we have, um, the, the knowledge that we share with the fellows and building on that collectively. Um, so we support um, about, well, this this cohort is 15 fellows. We have worked with as many as 20 fellows um, in the past, but uh, 15 seems to be a really good sweet spot. Um, and um, these are folks that have gone through multiple, multiple evaluations, um, an application process, an interview, um, kind of a presentation of their work. I use the term pitch 
but it's really just sharing, you know, the things that didn't come, maybe didn't come through organically through the application process. Um, and, you know, on average, we'll have around a hundred or so applications. And so, uh, you know, it does take, um, takes a lot to get to the point where Veronica is, but we have come across so many folks, both that are fellows, but also folks that are not necessarily fellows, but are doing great work and align with us through our trainings, through our community in other ways, and sometimes even become partners. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. And sort of the impact is uh, right in front of us with all the great work that Veronica is doing. So thank you for sharing about that program. So Veronica, I'm going to go back to you and ask you a little bit more specific question about just the area of maternal health and, you know, um, the issue of health uh, in general. So it's uh, so the question really is in public health and health policy, it is a known fact that women of color, especially black women, face higher risk of mortality and morbidity when it comes to reproductive health. So in the work that you've been doing involving maternal health deserts and early risk detection, do you see that people of color are affected more when it comes to negative birth outcomes? And any sort of suggestions and ideas and measures around policy or otherwise that you think should be implemented in order to help this issue? Well, definitely um, women are, are um, especially Black women, are more affected uh, when you talk about um, health disparities. Um, black women are three to four times more likely to experience a pregnancy complication than white women. And if you take that, if you look at that in a scope, just to give you a perspective about that. So if white women are experiencing pregnancy complication at 10%, that means black women are at a 30 to 40% increase in that number. So that's kind of where we're sitting. When you look at rural America, it's even higher because those resources are not readily available. So when you start talking about um, access to care, one of the things that can happen, training is so key. Because when you, when you start looking at disparities, what that lets you know, there is a, a bias somewhere in women, uh, you know, black women being seen as we can handle pain or, you know, it's not that important. So I think training is, is something that, that we can do in health systems to really get um, clinicians to understand there is a major difference and, and we really have to get uh, a handle um, on this. Just to put it in a little bit more perspective, Georgia is probably one of the highest um, um, states in America. They're, they're one of the highest um, in maternal mortality, meaning that it is one of the most dangerous states to have a baby. And, you know, you're talking about the United States of America. So that's a big problem. But access also, we have to do a better job in being able to get resources out to this out to these communities for black women. And how do you do that? Um, connectivity is, is a big thing. You know, women in rural America, especially African-American women, should have the same type of benefit 
as if that woman were in the city of Atlanta or in Buckhead. And so that's what True Diary is working on. We are working on being able, and I always say we're the eyes and ears of OBGYNs when patients are not in front of them. And so what our technology does, it allows OBGYNs really to monitor these patients anytime. So it doesn't matter if that patient is in an area where they're an hour away from an OBGYN, they will get the same quality of care, prenatal care, than someone in the city. And so those are the types of things that I think are necessary and being able to partner with different organizations that have any and everything to do with prenatal care, whether it's an organization like Healthy Mothers, Healthy Babies that advocate at the state capitol to change policy um, to reduce uh, the maternal uh, mortality rate in um, the state of Georgia, or just regular healthcare systems such as Grady, who is known for being a trauma center, but what a lot of people don't know, they have a strong NICU uh, department that really caters to high-risk pregnancy because that's what they do. They deal with trauma. So they, they have that type of specialty where they can deal with these patients anywhere and anytime. Um, it doesn't matter where they're at. So those are the types of things that we could be doing and that True Diary does to help, you know, um, have better maternal health outcomes. Sadrina, did you have anything to add? Yeah, I do. Actually, I'm just sitting here, you know, as Veronica's talking, I'm just sitting here thinking like she's really highlighting how True Diary is, um, you know, supporting black women specifically, um, women of color. But, you know, I'm thinking like in this COVID time that we're in and all of these pivots that we've had to do, you know, it's this is useful for everyone. Right. And so I think that's something that I just wanted to highlight because I think that we think about, and I, and I even emphasize like the disparities that um, take place, you know, in, um, in the leadership and work that's so many black women are doing, but there's also the innovation that's happening here is beneficial to all of us. And so, you know, the support that needs to be, um, you know, that needs to be shifted and and balanced and more fair is not just, you know, kind of correct the issues for black women. This is for all communities because right, we're in a situation right now where the types of resources that Veronica has, you know, determined are useful for black women are really useful for you know, for all of us. So I just, I just wanted to just kind of chime in and just say that like this, the innovation that I experience, like True Diary is like really transformative for the entire city and for, you know, for women and children and families of all backgrounds across our state and country. That's a great observation. Yeah. Sort of opportunity in this unfortunate situation also to extend help more broadly. Yeah. So Veronica, I do want to go back a little bit. You know, I think a gist of what you said is around this rural, um, urban sort of bridging that divide in terms of the infrastructure for, uh, you know, maternal health. Could you give us an example of a specific product that True Diary might have in bridging that divide? 
Well, I think the, the biggest thing for us, again, is being able to, it doesn't matter if you're in a rural um, setting or county where you're an hour away from the nearest OBGYN, or if you're in um, the city of Atlanta and you have um, employer health insurance and you have an OBGYN, you can drive to the doctor. Those two uh, differences should not have a different outcome. The woman in rural Georgia should have the same opportunity that the young lady in Buckhead in Atlanta has. So what True Diary does, again, we're the eyes and ears of OBGYNs when they're not in front of the patient. So we do remote patient monitoring, meaning that that particular um, patient does not necessarily have to go outside of their county to get quality care. They're able to um, get questions answered, for example, you know, promptly uh, a rapid response um, because they're not in front of an OBGYN. So we basically take the barrier out of the situation. We take the barrier out of the transportation situation. We take the barrier out of, um, you know, the the uh, not enough food access. We take all those barriers away um, from um, the patients because what we know it, it, especially with the situation I went through, I had access to my OBGYN on a regular basis and I still experienced the situation that I did. And what I realized is that that is magnified when you don't have a car, when you don't have transportation, when you're an hour away from your OBGYN. So we take all those barriers away from that patient and let them understand that they're gonna get that same quality of care at their fingertips. Wonderful, thank you. And you know, uh, one of my students also noticed that you have a master's in public administration. So very inspiring for my undergraduates. Uh, And then so uh, the students is asking that in what ways uh, do you believe policy action can help improve equity in maternal health deserts, um, which sort of you mentioned at the top of our conversation, too? Well, let me just say this. So I I pursued a master's degree in public administration because I really wanted to work in public service. Um, Although um, I didn't work in government, I went to corporate America. But what it did help me do, it helped me open my eyes to no matter what you're campaigning for or you're lobbying for, there are are certain things that have to be in place in order for you to make change. It's one thing to partner with organizations um, such as um, Healthy Moms, Healthy Babies and what they do. One of the things they do, they, you know, go to the legislative sessions because they, they want to rally around making change and changing policy um, to help reduce maternal mortality. But as we've seen with even the last election, what we know is that no change happens unless you have certain lawmakers in place. So it's more than just being able to rally and lobby to state legislatures. You really need to go out there and take a grassroots approach and really see um, who is really interested 
in what you're trying to solve. So for instance, with maternal health, if we don't have legislatures in office that really care about maternal health, they're not gonna change policy or state legislature to reduce, you know, the maternal mortality rate. And I give you an example of, of what I'm, I'm talking about. And this is a sidebar. When you look at the abortion rights bill that was passed, if you look at what came out of that bill, you know, women up to six weeks, you know, you couldn't get an abortion until after six weeks. Well, we know that most women really don't find out they're pregnant until six to eight weeks. And so when you look at what, how that affected women in being able to not be able to get an abortion and not make a decision on their own bodies, what that did, it had an effect on Planned Parenthood. And so a lot of those reproductive dollars were taken away, meaning that a lot of those women found themselves in reproductive health deserts. And what we know is that if you can't get the quality reproductive, you know, health care, when you find out you're pregnant, you're not going to get quality maternal care. So it's all relevant. But when you look at who really brought about that bill, it was white men. And so they're, they're, they're not engaged in the population that was affected by having that bill. So being able to vote people in that care about maternal health is a key in bringing those disparities to a head. So that's what I would say about that. Thank you. That's fantastic. So we're going to continue with this sort of theme of, um, uh, you know, from health deserts to maybe food deserts. And I know, Sedrina, you have done a lot of work in that area. So at the policy level, what do you think can or should be done to solve the problem of food deserts in underserved communities? I, I want to just say that there is a direct correlation, right, between, um, you know, kind of like um, health um, uh, disparities, food disparities, justice in these, all of these areas. And, you know, particularly as we talk about, um, you know, what's happening in rural communities and, um, and what happens, you know, during uh, pregnancy and immediately after delivery, so much of that is um, dependent on good quality nutrition. In addition to, you know, the uh, connection with the doctor and the doctor picking up on things. So, you know, when we talk about food justice, I just wanted to say, that like, you know, a lot of what Veronica is working on also provides an opportunity for the best start, you know, as it relates to food for mothers and for babies. Um, for, you know, my work specifically in Georgia was around local food systems and making sure that um, we have equity in to Veronica's point in rural parts of our state as well as in um, the metropolitan city um, cities. One of the things that we found um, when we are looking at justice in particular is um, in urban areas or areas that are determined to be urban is that you'll have um, farmers markets or um, you know direct distribution of food um, adjacent 
to communities that are high need and underserved. And then also sometimes even capitalizing on some of the programming that is available for underserved populations, but not actually serving those groups. And so I think that there needs to be greater accountability. Um, we see this in Atlanta, you know, there are so, so many farmers markets, but yet we have so, so many food deserts. And there's all sorts of programs and opportunities from double bucks with um, with food stamps through Wholesome Wave of Georgia um, to um, cooking demonstrations. And um, I even helped bring a program um, called um, um, through um, an African cooking class series um, to markets. But, you know, until we really start to incorporate in our messaging and our marketing and our programming, you know, the fact that we are trying to create spaces and support spaces of belonging for all people, then we're going to be challenged with actually meeting the needs of our communities, period, as it relates to anything, but certainly as it relates to food. So I would say that, you know, folks that are already in position of influence and have already created these systems, these distribution systems need to be, you know, a little bit more accountable, not, no, a lot more accountable um, to to addressing these needs and being more intentional. Um, Farmers markets should not be, in my opinion, a boutique experience. And so often they are, you know, this is food that we're talking about. And in the same way, you know, you see, you don't see proper representation of Black farmers at these markets, of Black vendors at these markets. And so, you know, I feel like there needs to be policies and procedures around reaching out to Black growers and making sure that they have the opportunity um, to, to be a part of the market and that we don't rely upon, you know, the way the access that might be reasonable for non-Black folks, um, you know, to just assume that that is an equal access opportunity. It typically is not. Um, The other thing that I would like to say beyond, you know, or maybe even prior to the distribution of the food is the growing of the food. And, um, you know, the reality is, is that black farmers in our state um, have been, you know, there's a huge issue with land loss. And, um, you know, the, you know, the Pickford case um, that um, really kind of brought all of this to the surface, where, um, you know, Shirley Sherrod and several of the farmers from the Albany area sued the United States government for literally taking their land away from them. And so that's just an example of how land has been systematically taken away from Black folks. The Farm Bill was actually adjusted when Black farmers were doing too well alongside their white counterparts. So going back to how when we address these injustices, we improve the experience for everyone, the Farm Bill actually was structured in such a way to, um, you know, to, to decrease the um, success of Black farmers, but it also impacted the small white farmers as well. So then that created this industrial kind of food system that we have that creates regular produce that you buy at the farmer's market is being classified as a specialty crop in a, you know, in our food system. And then that means that a specialty crop is not going to be, um, is not going to have this same level of, um, 
subsidies, right, that um, that would be afforded to a large industrial grower or farmer. Um, so, you know, really looking at the, the policies like in the food, the, the, the farm bill, which is our single largest piece of legislation in this country, and examining how it is, it was, you know, structured intentionally to, um, to alienate Black farmers, impacted all small farmers, made it difficult for all communities therefore to access the best, most healthy, most nutrient dense, fresh food that comes right out of their communities. Thank you. Thank you for that sort of also historical explanation. And, you know, as you were talking, I've been uh, sort of thinking about, okay, what can we as individuals do in addition to sort of the policy action that you mentioned or the, uh, you know, legislation and regulation that you mentioned. Um, so are, are, is there any individual behavior that's part of the problem? And, how, and if not, or even if it is, how can we really change that at an individual level? Yeah, I mean, I think if you go to a farmer's market, I'm just I'm just going to say this very directly. If you go to a farmer's market in Atlanta and you don't see black people, there's a problem. Mm. You know, this is Atlanta. And so I think like one of the first things that, you know, we all can do and I and I, I know I, I'm part of this, too. Is that, and I don't mean this is only white people that don't see black people. I mean, black people that don't see black people. Mm. Like, where are your neighbors? Where are the seniors in your community? Why are they not there? Maybe there are mobility issues. Maybe you can, you know, reach out um, through the neighborhood associations, through the business association and create a system of, um, you know, of, of reducing those barriers um, to local food. That's that's to me like the most immediate thing that comes to mind when people say, what can I do? I'm like, knock on the senior's door that lives across the street and see if the next time you go to the market, you can grab some food for them. Right. Okay. Um, the other thing is, is, uh, you know, increasing those access to resources. There are so many seniors, Georgia also has um, one of the highest rates of senior hunger. And, um, and there are, there are, you know, services and support and opportunities, but a lot of times they just don't even know that they have access to them. So I think that seniors um, are, are a great way. Um, and then, you know, I, I, I won't, I won't use the bad language, but, you know, Ron Finley, who is the, uh, the gangster gardener out of, um, out of uh, South Central LA, you know, he, he considers himself himself to be like a guerrilla gardener. He just started planting stuff and, you know, just on the street corner and, and dared, you know, the officials to say something. So he just created, you know, just a edible um, landscape for his community. So at the end of the day, like plant some stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, I really, really, really encourage uh, folks to just start planning. Um, I live in Kirkwood and there is a community garden that um, is being started with the intentionality of reducing um, the barriers uh, to, to food and to engaging the community, to honoring and respecting um, the, 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 the legacy residents in this community, many of which have, you know, gardening and growing experience that we can all benefit from. Um, I'm super excited about that. We're planting fruit trees, I think like 150 fruit trees in our community that will be in our front yards and be accessible to our neighbors. Um, so there'll be kind of a shared rotation of, of fresh fruit in over the you know next several years. So programs like that are super exciting to me. Community gardens are super exciting to me. Get involved in those, support them. Even if you don't garden yourself, donate, buy a share of produce um, from those spaces, you know, just 
just there's small things that I think we all can do to make sure that we're increasing access to food to everyone and that these farmers continue, you know, to to grow and to feel supported by their community. Oh, fantastic. Thank you for those really inspiring suggestions, Sadrina. So I'm going to come back to you, Veronica. And, you know, we've talked a little bit about the effect of the pandemic on your, on True Diaries business model. Uh, maybe take us through a little bit of before the pandemic, where you were going, and then how did you pivot, you know, post-pandemic? Well, one thing I will say that the pandemic has changed a lot in digital health. Um, before the pandemic, I would say the average sales cycle of engaging with um, a health system was 18 months. There was a lot of bureaucracy um, that was involved in the process. And I think what has happened is because of the pandemic, what that did was it showed health systems that it cannot take 18 months, up to 18 months to implement solutions. If you have a startup that has a solution that will help your organization, that's that sales cycle has really been reduced to up to um, eight weeks. So I think that's one of the differences um, in what has happened in the pandemic. I think another difference is tele telemedicine has been adopted so widely now before the pandemic. Um, it was a hard sell because there was so much regulation that was involved. You had to be, um, you know, where a health professional was um, to be considered uh, being able to use uh, telemedicine and for it um, to be, um, you know, paid for by insurance. And now telemedicine, I think that's the biggest uh, difference. It is you know, nationwide now, um, you know, coverage. And so that is, that has changed a lot of uh, digital health um, startups and um, where, how far they've come in a, a very short period of time. I think our biggest pivot um, that we have made um, from the you know, the effects of the pandemic, we really had to hone in on who our customer was. And we had to really take a very narrow and focused approach to prenatal uh, care. We couldn't be all things to all people. And I think as a startup, sometimes you want to cover everybody. Oh yeah, we can, you know, we can, we can pivot to this situation. And one of the things that we didn't do, a lot of people told us, Hey, you need to, yeah, we know you're doing um, prenatal care, but you really need to pivot into um, a COVID um, startup and do something with COVID attached COVID to it. And what I did do is I went and talked to our mentors who were OBGYNs and they said, absolutely not. Do not get on the COVID bandwagon because COVID will not be here forever. And once COVID is over, what are you going to have? So we were very, you know, focused on staying the task with um, prenatal care. And so we were we just became more uh, specific and focused on what we wanted to do. And, you know, in talking to um, our OBGYNs, it was more about, you know, what was going to save them time, what was going to um, 
help them, you know, better engage with their patients, what was going to work directly and integrate into their workflow, which True Diary does. We do all those things. We save time for the OBGYNs. We allow them to better engage their patients by spending more time with solutions as opposed to asking, you know, questions throughout the um you know, office visits. So we take that time away of, of having them doing tedious tasks that's already um, engraced into um, our technology. And like I said, it integrates directly into their workflow, therefore uh, reducing their cost. And so when you talk about the pandemic, a lot of health systems weren't able to do those um, revenue generating uh, surgeries and different activities that brought a lot of money into the health system because COVID had just overtaken everything. And so now what health systems are doing, they're being a little bit smarter about who they partner with. If you're not able to engage with them in that way, then you won't be able to partner with those health systems. And what people don't realize is if you don't take care of the health system, you can't help the patient. And so um, we directly focused more on that. And so that's how we pivoted. And that's what's changed um, with us since the pandemic. Um, so, Sedrina, I want to sort of go from Veronica's uh, sort of specific example to thinking broadly about the pandemic and the issues of food justice, food scarcity. So the question I have in front of me is how has the pandemic changed the food industry, specifically food scarcity, justice and food economies, uh, you know, including effects on tourism that have affected economy and jobs. So any comments on, you know, the work that you've been doing all these years, the effect of the pandemic on that? I will say, you know, this is where um, I have good news, you know, to share. Um, Farmers in general um, in Atlanta are reporting that they are getting so much support from their communities. Um, People are going hyper-local. They're finally understanding that Sprouts is not purchasing food from local farmers and they're taking the extra effort um, to um, to engage local growers in a very, very specific way. Um, and, you know, and again, just kind of, I think folks are realizing that when, you know, things really kind of shut down, those were some of the spaces that existed um, to be able to get good quality food and to, um, to address your health and your food needs. Um, I'll also say that we saw a really, really great response from the restaurant industry, just in terms of, um, you know, the way that they work to take care of, um, you know, low wage employees, who oftentimes are also food insecure. And a lot of people don't, you know, don't think about that. Um, that lack health insurance and benefits and, you know, and we're really at high risk during the pandemic. Um, we also saw restaurants teaming up with, um, with folks who are distributing food, you know, like Umi Feeds and um, one, another one of our fellows. And so we've seen a lot more both interest from on like on the um, 
on the um, kind of the industry side, but also on the individual community side as well. Folks being willing to, to support their neighbors, being willing to pay attention, to recognize the intersectionalities um, between, you know, kind of um, inequality in our city as it relates to, you know, any number of topics, um, racial um, reckoning that we've all kind of had to address, um, some of the political unrest that we're dealing with, and this pandemic, you know, all of these issues intersect in very, very interesting and sobering ways, I think, in our communities right now. And so it's been, um, it's been very interesting to just to see how communities are responding. I think, um, you know, as difficult as it's been to shelter in place and as hard as it's been, you know, to be isolated from, from you know, especially with this fellowship class, like this is the first time we've been like completely digital and it's been so tough, but like seeing the resilience um, of these communities. And um, I tell people, I'm like, you know, Georgia is just the place to be right now. I mean, we are doing it from all the way from, you know, how we're responding in certain ways to, you know, and, and with this pandemic to like our political systems and how we're addressing those things. And, you know, uh, sustained change takes time. It takes intentionality. So we have a lot of work to do, but I'm extraordinarily hopeful that um, the, the changes that I'm seeing in communities in Atlanta has the potential to shift I will say, or to stay, it's shifting. And now I, I think it has a to stay. What we have to do is hold, you know, the lawmakers accountable. And we also have to hold, you know, philanthropy accountable. You know, we want these programs to stay and we need to make sure that they are supporting them and not through, you know, pass through ways that they are directly infusing money into these organizations so that they can sustain and continue to do the work long after, you know, this pandemic is uh, not impacted us the way that it is now. Well, those are the sort of the list of questions I had, but, uh, you know, I also don't want to give you before we close a chance to share anything that you think would be valuable, but you haven't had a chance to share. So Veronica, do you have any other comments or words of wisdom or inspiration? Well, one of the things that I will say first, so I told my story, but I didn't tell you the final outcome. So, you know, I told you that, you know, I went through all these things with my son um, from learning disabilities to behavioral disabilities. And so we got him into baseball at a very young age. And I'm happy to say that my son just turned 18. He is on his way to Lincoln Memorial University on a baseball scholarship, and he has a 3.5 GPA. And the reason that I tell that story is because a lot of women in my situation that didn't have, again, even though I didn't have the resources and I didn't know, you know, uh, where to turn and I didn't have that support system, I still had employee insurance and I still was able to drive to the OBGYN. And the reason I tell the story and the outcome is because for women in rural Georgia and in maternal health deserts that don't have those same resources need to hear from someone who went through the same thing that they may be going through right now and and understand and know that there can be a positive outcome with positive changes that happen in your pregnancy and your prenatal care. So that's very important. Um, And I just feel like um, for the students who are, are will be listening um, to this recording, 
anything that you want to do in life and fight for, you're able to do that. All you have to do is just start, just do it like, like, uh, you know, Nike says, just do it. Don't ever feel that an obstacle is too high or you don't have experience or you don't have lobbying experience or you can't make a change. I had no experience when I started my business. I didn't even know what a business plan was, what a pitch deck was. And I was able to funnel my way through it with the help of mentors and even with CCI and the fellowship. It's a great thing for me right now because the startup is to the point where we really have to make sure that we're crossing all of our T's and dotting all of our I's to make sure that we make a very distinct impact within the maternal health community. And CCI is helping us do that. So I just wanted to say that. Oh, wow, Veronica, thank you for sharing your story. I just, uh, I feel so inspired sitting here. So I really, really appreciate that. And I'm so excited for your son. You know, I wish him all the best. Sadrina, do you have any other comments to add? Yeah, well, you know, I think stories are best told through our children. Um, And uh, so uh, similarly, um, like Veronica, I have an 18-year-old daughter. Um, and uh, what's really interesting is that she she hasn't decided where she's going. She's uh, applied to about a dozen places, but she has um, created quite a bit of a stir um, at her school around racial justice and just the experiences. Um, and um, and so what I want to say about that is that you're never too young um, to um, to challenge things and the status quo. And I encourage, um, you know, and I think there's so much inspiration in young people. Um, I also have a, a grown, I have two grown sons. My oldest son graduated from Oglethorpe University with a degree in studio art when, uh, you know, people really questioned us supporting him in, in art. And now, you know, he's a very successful local artist. And so that's been great to see. And his work is inspired by, you know, the craftsmen of of his family. So I think there's just so many ways um, that young folks can can make their mark in this world. My middle son is a graduate of Georgia State um, School of Business um, yeah, just this past fall. So um, and he's, you know, he's starting his own business and he is determined that he will be his own boss. So, you know, I'm just, I'm inspired by my children. Um, I glean inspiration by the students that that we get to work through, whether they're interns or that we are facilitating classes or having conversations with like this. So I just, uh, I, I encourage the, the, the students um, that are participating in your class and are, you know, kind of honing in on how they plan to make an impact in their community. To don't wait till graduation start now yes oh, well wonderful that is really really inspiring both of you and i just want to thank you for being so authentic and so transparent in your ideas and in your stories and i learned a lot and i'm sure my students listening to this will learn a lot too so thank you to both of you thank you for having us yeah it's great You can subscribe to the Andrew Young School YouTube channel at the link in our show notes to follow the entire Policy Talks series as new episodes are released this spring and summer. The Andrew Young School podcast is produced by me, Taylor Olmsted, with production assistance on this episode from Garima Shah. Our executive producer is Ivani Raval. We are a production of Georgia State University's Andrew Young School of Policy Studies, located in downtown Atlanta, Georgia. 
To learn more about the Andrew Young School, visit us online at aysps.gsu.edu or follow us on social media at aysps.gsu. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember to leave a review for us in your podcast app of choice, and we'll be back next month interviewing another policy thought leader from the Andrew Young School of Policy Studies at Georgia State University.